everyone. It is Zoe here and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast. This is the show that's going to give you all the ideas, tools and validation you need as we navigate our lives together as mothers. In August, to give me and the team a bit of a break from our rather hectic recording schedule, we re-release some of our most popular, most loved episodes from the first six months of the year. And I am so excited for you to hear this one. Here it is. Just a quick ask from me before we dive into this week's episode. You might not know this, but we are a really small team behind the scenes at Motherkind, but we have a massive ambition to support millions of mothers to feel more confident, happy and empowered. And even though we've got this incredible back catalogue of over 300 episodes, I really do feel like we are just getting started. And often you lovely listeners will ask me how you can support the podcast and help us reach more mums. So I've thought of a really easy way that you can do that because from today you can subscribe to the podcast if you listen on Apple Podcasts, which over 70% of you do. So for just $3.99 a month, you can support our Motherkind mission and you get all the podcasts ad-free going forward. It's really easy. All you need to do is just go to your Apple Podcasts app, find Motherkind, find the section at the top where it says support the podcast and enjoy ad-free episodes. Click on that. You'll then have a seven-day ad-free trial where you can hear what it feels like to listen to the podcast with no ads whatsoever. And then you move on to pay $3.99 a month. And every single penny of that money will go towards empowering more mothers with this incredible guests, ideas, and tools that we share week after week on the show. Thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate it. Whether you subscribe or not, I am incredibly grateful that you are here and thank you for being part of the Motherkind mission. Okay, on to this week's episode. I asked our community on Instagram this week about perfectionism and these results are going to blow your mind. 94% of you said that you're too hard on yourselves. Me too. 85% of you said the impact of that is that you're more stressed out and exhausted. And 93% of you said you have a loud inner critic. When I do stats like this, it never really surprises me because, you know, having coached thousands of mothers at this point, I know that this is such a typical story that we have. But still, seeing them there in black and white, it blows my mind. Because despite doing so much, think about everything that you have done, probably already today, we are still so hard on ourselves. I want to help change that with this episode because we deserve to live freely from this perfectionism, which is always pushing ourselves towards an imaginary sky high bar, focusing on what we haven't done, not on what we have done. And it can floor us in motherhood. It floored me because as we know, there is no such thing as achieving in motherhood. There will always be something we think we should be doing better. Always more to do, always different choices that we torture ourselves with, I think particularly around work. So in early motherhood, I lived in this perpetual state of not feeling good enough. My inner critic was constantly on me. 
And just like you guys said, that left me stressed out and exhausted. And then I discovered these magical words, self-compassion. I learned how to reframe that critic. I learned to allow myself to be messy, to mess up, to lower that bar, to challenge all those shoulds, and I'm doing that in air quotes, that were swimming around in my head. And I cannot tell you the difference it made to me. It's like a constant thing. It's like going to the gym. I don't think this is a one and done. So I have to check in most days with my tendency to be too hard on myself. And I make sure that every single day now I recognize what I've done that day. Even if it's getting the girls to school on time, I'll give myself a little pat on the back for it. Because if I don't do that, if I don't force myself to lower that bar and to recognize what I am doing, I go straight back into that hard on myself place. As you can tell, this is a really important subject to me. So I'm so excited because this week's episode is all about how to find freedom from this horrible cage of thinking that so many of us get stuck in. It's with Michaela Thomas. She is a senior clinical psychologist and CBT psychotherapist. She is an expert in perfectionism. She is a mum of two. She is absolutely incredible. She's also a friend of mother kind. And I'm lucky, super lucky, because Michaela was also my client when she was part of the mother kind group program. So I got to absorb lots of her wisdom then as well. In this episode, you are going to learn how to not be so hard on yourself how to avoid burnout, which is what happens when we're too hard on ourselves, and how to develop a way better relationship with that inner critic, which of course drives us to then be hard on ourselves. One thing I know for sure is that we need this episode. Please share it if it resonated with you. Here it is. Oh, Michaela, I'm really excited to connect and chat to you about so many things, but predominantly burnout and the link with perfectionism. Well, thank you for inviting me on. I'm so excited to have this conversation. It's very needed at the moment. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit, what do we need to know about your skills, history, experience that, you know, has you sat here today? Well, my profession is clinical psychologist and coach, but I have many hats and I wear many identities. So obviously I'm a mother as well. I'm a mother of two. I'm a Swede living in the UK. So I came here in 2010 and I've done some training here as well as in Sweden. And I run my own company. So I'm an entrepreneur and a businesswoman as well. So the reason I sit here today is because of the personal experiences I've had as well around how perfectionism has linked to burnout for me. I realized from the inside the costs it can have on your mental and physical well-being. So it's become linked with my purpose, my passion around the women I support. So I work with a lot of working mothers who are very ambitious, very high-striving, overachieving, but yet they put so much pressure on themselves to be perfect that it's almost like they don't get any joy out of the achievements that they actually hit. It's almost like there's no savoring of it. There's then just moving on to the next thing. And I recognize some of those patterns in myself from a you know a younger version of myself that I was just looking for the next target to hit and I see now coming out the other side of how much more fulfilling and rewarding life can be when you provide yourself with a bit more permission to be kind to be compassionate to be loving towards yourself so I have trained in compassion focused therapy 
acceptance and commitment therapy, which I know you're familiar with as well, CBT or cognitive behavior therapy, and a particular kind of couples therapy called behavioral couples therapy. So I've put all of those things together. I have allowed myself to follow my ambition. I've done some amazing things like being on this podcast is pretty cool. And I've written a book. I've been on other big podcasts. I run my own company. But the way I do it now is so that I can follow my ambition without drowning in it. It really needs to be balanced in with my other priorities and values that matter to me in my life, like my two beautiful children and my husband. So that's sort of how I'm sitting here today. And when did that big shift happen for you then? You know, you described, I think so many women will identify with that, me included, you know, of just ticking off. And I think it's not just work. I think lots of people tick off, you know, a bigger house, a better car. You know, I've got the child or maybe the children, depending on your setup. I've got the job. I've got promotion. I've got nicer clothes. And yet I still feel, if I'm honest, I think so many women think this unfulfilled. I'm just not feeling as happy as I thought I would be with all this. When did that shift happen for you? I think it's when I had an episode of depression linked to burnout. I was working in the NHS at the time. That's what I came to the UK to do. And I worked in a sort of fast paced inner London service where the targets were just immense. And there's no, you know, no fault of the NHS. There needed to be. The waiting list was you know, immense. And I remember sitting down to look at my computer, logging in and seeing about 80 names on my own personal wait list. So this service had a system of not having a joint wait list for everyone in the service, but everyone had their own personal wait list. And because I was ambitious and because I'm a deeply feeling person, I'm very empathetic. I really struggled with the sense of suffering and all those people waiting all those people who I had had some sort of contact with, either done an assessment or spoken with them on the phone. So I knew an element of their difficulties and I knew that they were suffering. And what I really disliked was this moment when I logged in and I looked at the names and I just could not remember all the people. And that's when it hit home to me that I am in a systemic problem here where the targets are too high and my resources that I bring to the plate are not sufficient. But yet, because I come from this sort of conditioning of need to be a good girl, need to be ambitious, need to be doing everything right to be good enough, then I started taking that as a personal failure which it wasn't. In hindsight, with my compassionate eyes on, I know it was the system. So I was angry as well as upset. I was angry with the system. I was trying to fight back. I have sort of a bit of a rebel streak to me. So I was trying to speak up. It does help to be Swedish in a British culture, a little bit more outspoken. But I just got met with pushback, resistance. And then that was pointing to maybe I needed to do some time management training, or maybe I needed to go and do this or the other thing. And this is why in sort of, you know, fast forward a number of years, eight, nine years, why I'm still so passionate about not pinning these problems on the individual. If you're experiencing burnout or if you have perfectionistic tendencies, we need to look at the pressure that comes from within you. Like in my case, where I felt like I needed to constantly achieve to feel like I was worthwhile. And then the external pressures that come from an environment that might be toxic, that might have unrealistic, unrelenting standards for you to hit. So then you get a perfect storm. If you're in a busy environment that is very fast paced and the productivity isn't required from you to constantly be achieving, and then you come from that mindset or you come from that conditioning yourself, then it was just a recipe for disaster. And so I burnt out. 
So that's why sort of in 2014, I still remember this image in my head of how I sat on the stairs, the second step on the stairs and cried and I couldn't make myself go to work. I was never signed up sick because the thing that got me through, the thing that I really felt gave me joy still was sitting with the patients. When I was in the room with the patient, getting to do the thing that I love and I still love doing, supporting people, I felt good. When I stepped out of the room and I was faced again with the targets, the KPIs, you know, key performance indicators and things like that, all the budget cuts, then I felt burnt out, if that makes sense. So I've then tried to sort of tap into that and never forget that lesson, that learning of how I meet myself with compassion, even if I'm in an environment that doesn't provide compassion for each individual's suffering. Thank you for sharing that and so vulnerably. And I think it's so interesting, the parallels actually, with what you were describing about the external context and how at the time you were thinking, I've got to do better. I've got to do better. And yet I loved how you said with compassionate eyes, I could see it was the system that was broken. And I feel exactly the same way about the motherhood system. So many mothers are like, I've got to do better. What's wrong with me? Why can't I do everything? Why am I stressed out? Why am I burnt out? Absolutely. There are things that just like you shared, you know, that tool of compassion can absolutely shift that for us. But I think a big part of that tool of compassion is being able to look at the system that surround us, right? Absolutely. There's a reality check in compassion where we kind of go to ourselves and say, look, there's no wonder that you're feeling this way because this is hard. There's a reality check, which sometimes can feel a bit depressing, but being able to say it as it is means that we move away from toxic positivity or fake optimism and just actually meet ourselves where we are at with the feelings that we're having. And then we are able to take more personal accountability and responsibility for changing the things we can change. I mean, I know that you're familiar with the serenity prayer. So I lean on that quite a lot of accepting the things I cannot change, changing the things I can, and then having the wisdom to know the difference. When do we battle a system from within? When do we say that actually the most compassionate thing is to leave? And that's the point I came to after seven years in the NHS and setting up my own business on the side of that. It's obviously not easy, but it's helped me feel like I can be ambitious as a person. I can strive for things that mean something to me. But without bending over backwards in the process, without breaking in the process, I can design a week of work that really fits for me as a mother as well. You know, meeting myself out, you know, after a really bad night of sleep or if I feel like I'm low on capacity, that I can design my work so that it helps me show up in a more compassionate way. I'm never at the point of exhaustion and burnout now that I can control my own environment. But that is hard. Because then so many of the women I support come from a corporate environment or a public sector environment or anything fast-paced and they bring that with them into their motherhood, into their parenting style. They bring that with them even if they start their own business, which we know that actually it's been twice as many women than men setting up businesses since the pandemic. We kind of think that that pressure to perform or be productive, if you take that with you into your own business, then you're also going to be on the path to burnout. If you take that with you into the way you parent, thinking I must constantly be doing something, constantly be productive, you're missing these pockets of rest that can show up intermittently in parenting and you need to grab them by the horns. So just going back to you sat on that step, thinking I can't go back to it, how did you get yourself out of that burnout? Because I think a lot of people will completely relate with that feeling of, I just can't do this anymore. 
or meeting myself with kindness was the first start. Um, dialing in support, you know, speaking to my supervisor who I had at the time, who understood. Getting some support from the NHS. I think I saw someone for depression at the time. There was a lot of things going on in my life. Otherwise, you know, we'd relocated. We were planning our wedding. There was a lot of these things which actually sort of I just said to myself, look, you're looking at three of the big life stressors on the life stressor list. Helps to be a psychologist sometimes. You can kind of say, well, no wonder that you are feeling really depleted. It's almost like when we walk around with a backpack full of heavy bricks that we don't have any opportunity to take off. We're just constantly carrying around. At the end of a day, if someone would be carrying around heavy bricks, you wouldn't say, oh, it's surprising that your back is aching a bit, that you're a bit sore. We don't say that because that's a physical impact. But what if those bricks are things that we carry around in our mind? What if we're holding stress or a mental load? For instance, I, I was not yet a parent then, but we're carrying around a lot of things. If we're able to say to ourselves, much like we would for physical injury, to say, actually, you know what, there's no wonder that you are depleted because you've been carrying around a lot of these heavy bricks, trying to shoulder all of these people needing your support on the wait list, planning a wedding, relocating, moving out of London, commuting in. You know, it was a hard time in my life. And compassion has been something that's always supported me through those times because it is essentially one of the antidotes to perfectionism. Perfectionism is a constant pursuit, a constant striving of these unrelenting high standards that are impossible to meet, but yet we keep trying. So it's not the destination that I then am perfect in any way, and that's what perfectionism is. It's the pursuit that is the problem. It's the constant striving because that is the thing that robs you of both your energy and your joy. You were able to access that compassion, but as you and I know, I think if you haven't grown up with parents or primary caregivers who instilled that voice in you, or if you haven't been lucky enough to study it like you and I have, then it can be so hard to access that kind, compassionate voice, as opposed to that voice that's saying, there's something wrong with you, or that fear voice, I'm burnt out, but I have to pay the mortgage. You know, I have to pay for my nursery. You might be a solo parent or, you know, have really challenging financial circumstances. How does someone find that compassion when perhaps they've never had that compassionate voice? I can't say that I grew up with a compassionate voice either, obviously, without diverging into my background too much. But it's been something that I had to learn and almost like reparent myself around growing up. I am much more familiar with inner criticism, right? To have a harsh voice that has a go at you for getting things wrong or micromanaging things or kind of inner judgment. So, I mean, the founder of Compassion Focused Therapy also used to talk about a self-loathing club, whether that's sort of jokingly where he came from. So we want to make sure that we don't paint this picture of compassion as something we do from a high horse and it's something that you just get through osmosis. I had to work really hard at almost like flexing that muscle and practicing that. Often when I work with clients who this feels really alien to, it's like a foreign language that they're never used before, I start by talking about how hard it is to be kind to yourself. And can we bring some kindness to the fact that this is really hard to do? So sometimes people write letters to themselves, compassionate letters about how hard it is to be compassionate, how hard it is to even start. So it gets a bit meta, but we kind of have to start to that point and say, well, no wonder this is really difficult. You grew up in an environment that wasn't conducive to being kind. No wonder that you would be more likely to fall into self-criticism because that is your kind of tried and tested. That's the familiar track that your brain has laid down and you'll be looking out for that pattern wherever you go. So no wonder that you have a stark, harsh inner critic 
because through no fault of your own, that was laid down for you, not by you. And that's a really good starting point. You've not at this point done anything about it. You've not tried to change anything. You've just described in quite neutral, warm terms how hard it is that you have this inner critical voice. Exactly. It's that awareness. It's always the first step. Why is it that that compassionate voice is so important to particularly linking to burnout and motherhood to develop? Because I think lots of people think, no, it's that critical voice that gets me out of bed, gets the school lunches made, gets me to school on time, gets me to work. My critical voice pushes me to do more and more and more. I think a lot of people fear a kind of voice means they're going to lie on the sofa and eat, you know, Twix all day. There's a lot of things there. One is, why is that important for you? And sometimes that's not enough of a buy-in for people to want to change it and develop compassion for themselves because like, well, I come last anyway or I don't, I don't deserve it. So then when we say, why is this important for you? We will hit upon their fears, blocks and resistances around being compassionate to themselves. And one of them you touched upon there, which is I'll be lazy or I'll be complacent or I won't be a good mother. I will just, I will forget to do the school lunches if I don't kick myself. So then we actually have to acknowledge that we have a real fear around being compassionate to ourselves because it means we risk losing something, something that has been serving us for much longer than compassion because compassion is new. And the thing that's been serving us has been the inner critical voice or pushing ourselves or being overproductive. So often I find the way in from others isn't to say, well, why wouldn't you do this for you? Because you'll be more energized, you'll be feeling better, you'll be more well. This links to physical health. So when we are more compassionate to ourselves, we're more likely to eat better, you make better food choices, we sleep better, less likely to have things like cardiovascular disease. There's lots of research that shows the benefits of compassion for you. But again, people resist it. So then the way in for many of us is with the benefit on your children. So when you soften and soothe yourself and you're in a critical voice so that you can be kinder towards yourself, you also are changing a generation. You're also showing your children how you speak to yourself when you make a mistake or how you speak to yourself when you look at yourself in the mirror. Do you pinch your fat or do you go, I'll do. You know, it depends on how you speak to yourself. If you go, oh, I feel really strong today or these jeans make me feel really happy. They're very soft. That's very different to, oh, does my bum look big in this? The language you have about yourself matters because of the next generation watching you. So if it's not enough to say compassion is good for you because you deserve to be well, it might be too actually alienating for you to consider that as a starting point. Then think about compassion is good for your family too. So not only does it replenish you and top you up, but also your children will benefit from having a compassionate stance because they will learn to face mistakes with more kindness. They will learn to have a go without being so afraid of failure. And they will know what to do when they're facing shame because we all face shame right? So they will know what to do as an antidote to shame. We have compassion. I think so many of us mothers have these critical voices and perfectionist tendencies. And, and a lot of what I hear from the mother kind community is I really don't want to pass that on to my children, especially my daughter or my daughters. And when you would say, what I'm hearing you say is take the focus off the child and put the focus back on you because you are going to be the one to model that change. Is that right? Absolutely. I think we want to start with the point of 
checking the narrative first like is there a reason why you want to not pass this on because you're scared that you're going to damage your child again we're coming into this with sort of a really negative thing like i'm going to ruin them it will be all my fault i am damaging them that's not a compassionate motivation behind your actions that's still a punitive self-punitive like one of my clients said passionate unkindness about yourself so that's still fear-based and fear does not tend to drive change and learning the way that kindness and strength would so saying to yourself look it's not my fault i grew up without learning these things i want to show my children my daughters how to be kinder towards themselves how to be more accepting of their bodies etc it needs to start with me saying to myself this is really hard like you said to me in my podcast that, you know, we can't hold the full responsibility for breaking generational cycles just like that. It's a heavy load to carry on a daily basis when you're also trying to just manage the school pickup without being late and, you know, making sure they're fed and in bed. I just wanted to give that as a reality check that it's a lot to hold on your own. It may be that you need to see a therapist or a psychologist or a coach to help you unpick some of these patterns, but also it's okay to not constantly get it right. It's okay if you occasionally let your inner critic slip out or you have a go at your children or you criticize them. And these old patterns come out because you are learning still. It does not need to be perfect. So really, we want to look out for those perfectionistic tendencies in the way that you try to let go of your perfectionism. Of course, it's going to be there because you're going to want to be like, let's roll up my sleeves. I'm now going to learn how to be compassionate. I'm not going to be a perfectionist anymore. And then you're being a perfectionist about how you go about doing that. This is one of the most common things I see, which means that we almost fall into a sense of self-sabotage. I try to do everything right, and that's exhausting because I go in like 120%. And that means that the kind of like the pendulum swings from doing everything to then nothing very, very quickly. And we fall away and we stop doing the work, stop reading the books we picked up or stop listening to podcasts we sought out or stop going to the therapy sessions because we're so feeling that it needs to shift immediately it's almost like impatience is going to be the thing that trips you up so allow yourself to be work in progress this is messy this is chaotic this is imperfect and the whole process of letting go of perfect needs to be imperfect too it's such a good point and i see that all the time just like you shared you know people who are right now the thing that I'm going to win at is healing, is empowering myself and transforming the next generation. I'm going to read every book. Someone messaged me the other day saying, I've listened to 50 of your podcasts this week. I was like, what? In a week? I was like, how's that even possible? <laughs> she must have been listening on like triple speed, I would have thought. But I just thought, wow, there is someone who's like grabbing it. And is, as you say, let's just fix this now. And it's exactly the same energy, isn't it? We have to change the approach you know, and I, I so relate to that when I first, you know, years and years ago, 20 years ago, whatever, dived into this sort of self-help, self-empowerment world. I would just like a sponge. I loved it. I couldn't get enough of it. it. Took me ages to figure out that there's a massive difference between knowledge and application. Oh yeah. The implementation is always the hardest. I attract people who've done all the reading and they just struggle to take the action. And that's completely normal and human. It's really normal. So I don't want people to kind of, oh, I'm so lazy. I'm not disciplined enough. I'm not motivated enough. Because if you are sort of, I mean, this is why I struggle with some of these terms of, are you ready to do the work? Because people can be ready to do the work. And then obviously you exist in a context that means that we're more likely to be burnt out now than ever. 
we were still existing in a post-pandemic state where we have marginalization of women. You know, we have a higher mental load than, than our male partners if we're in a hetero um, relationship. So it's just not fair to ourselves to say, I'm ready to do the work. Why am I not doing the work? Why am I slacking off? You're not slacking off. You are somewhat sidetracked by a post-pandemic climate. So I think that's really, really important to say. And also this idea of, I need to just fix this now you are not broken. So then there's nothing to fix. That's the difficult part for a lot of people to come to an acceptance around that this is me with all the different parts of me, all the different versions of me. One of them is a perfectionistic version. And for me, that's still going to come up sometimes. And I see that still in clients that the idea isn't that you come to the end of the road and you're never, ever perfectionistic again. The idea is that when you recognize that part in you coming up and saying, I need you to work harder or I need you to not take a break because that's slacking off, then you will know what to say and do with that part and how to treat that part with kindness and say something like, you know, I get it. I completely get that you want me to push through and push harder because that has served me well before. It's got me to X, Y, and Z position in my life, but it came at a great expense. There was a cost to that. To me, I wasn't well. I was snappy with the kids or you know, we can talk about sort of nervous system regulation. I wasn't regulated or I was constantly angry, lost my shit. All of these things that I hear people say that when they were listening to that voice, exclusively listening to that voice without challenge, they were doing all of these behaviors that we know actually constitutes perfectionism because perfectionism isn't an identity flaw. It is a set of behaviors. And behaviors can be changed. If they couldn't, then I'd be out of a business. I firmly believe with hope that we can start to treat ourselves differently by taking small, small micro actions every single day to do something slightly more messy or do something slightly imperfect or do something vulnerable because we keep chipping away at that voice that says you need to perform to have value and worth. What are some of those behaviors that people could identify? So the things that people might do, they might be checking. So there's kind of driven by doubt that it's not going to be good enough or they'll make a mistake. So they might be really caught up in checking behaviors, say checking an email four or five times before they send it, checking for spelling mistakes in a text message, checking through their work a lot, checking on their children, checking up on their partner, managing the children. So this is where perfectionism can also be outwardly orientated. It may not just be about you. It might be that you also hold other people to relentless high standards as well. This is why compassion is really key, not just towards you. It's not just self-compassion that I talk about. It's compassion for others too, because we need to kind of acknowledge that that checking behavior has an impact on others. It might also be linked to things like reassurance seeking, that I just need to check in with everyone else that this is going to be good enough, that it's right. And that means you override things like gut instinct and intuition and trust. Instead, you're just like, I just need to have proof. It can lead to things like procrastination. Very, very common. Not every perfectionist procrastinates and not every procrastinating person is a perfectionist, but it's a huge overlap where you then stop yourself in your tracks because you're so worried that it won't be good enough. So you, A, don't get started. Or B, you start, but it's not immediately perfect. So you then kind of drift away and don't finish it. Or C, you finish something, but it's taken you so much effort because you've been kind of putting it off, putting it off. So you're actually then dancing on the deadline. You're so close to missing the deadline that you come into the goal completely depleted and take no joy or 
reward from the achievement you've just put together. So those are some of the common things you might see. A very, very big one is masking or hiding, pretending that you are, you're doing fine like a duck that sort of, sort of calmly, serenely floats on the water, but underneath you see a huge peddling. So you won't see that because the person won't tell you that they're nervous or anxious. Sometimes we think of that as high-functioning anxiety. And that way of hiding yourself and not showing your vulnerability has an impact on your quality of your relationships. You're not going to get as close to people if you never admit that you're a bit nervous or that you have similar flaws or common humanity to them. So that behavior can be really tricky as well because that can lead to loneliness. People don't attach to you and connect to you if you're not daring to show yourself as a vulnerable, normal human being. They kind of go, oh, well, she's so perfect. Like, I can't let her into my house. She's going to see how messy I am and she's going to judge. So the very thing you're trying to avoid becomes a reality because if I don't show other people that I'm normal, a human, and a messy mum like you, then you actually become really lonely. So that's kind of just a few flavors of behaviors that people can engage in. Often it's aimed at trying to hide other people seeing your flaws and your actual normal human nature. And it's aimed at striving. So you can see people pushing, 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 overworking. People who have young children might take homework and sit again after the kids have gone to sleep, you know, up till 2 a.m., sacrificing sleep, pushing through using substances is very common, like, you know, grabbing sugar on the go, drinking some more coffee. All of those kind of things are very, very common. And that also then has an impact on your nervous system. You get more depleted, you get more anxious because you're just running on empty and just fueling yourself with substances. So very, very, very common to have a sense of overwhelm almost like a brain fog is very common as well when people are constantly pushing themselves into toxic productivity. And that's difficult because if you're also a mother, maybe you have young children, so you're kind of coming out of the postnatal depletion fog, or your children are older and perhaps you're coming towards perimenopause or menopause, and then you have brain fog for that reason. So basically, if you add overworking and overproductivity to that, you're buggered. No wonder then that you have completely burnt out. And that is all acting in the context of increasing pressures and demands post-pandemic. We're in a state of austerity. And also we know that perfectionism is on the rise because we see these perfect images constantly around us in magazines, in reels, on social media, where people do not show the behind the scenes. There are some people who do, like you and me, but lots of people don't. And we see the manicured, curated image. And all of those things together is a perfect storm responsible for why perfectionism is on the rise and why burnout is so high at the moment. Thanks to this week's sponsor, AG1, the daily foundational nutritional supplement that supports whole body health. I drink AG1 in the morning just as I'm making the girls breakfast. I mix it up. And every time I drink it, I am showing myself through my actions that I am worth taking care of. You know, it's through our actions that we show ourselves our worth. So I make it my mantra now when I'm mixing up my AG1 to remind myself my needs matter. My health is important. I am worth taking care of. AG1 replaces your multivitamin, your probiotic and more in one simple drinkable habit. So for all us mums out there, we know how busy we are. So if you're looking for self-care that's quick and easy, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. 
All you have to do is go to drinkag1.com slash motherkind. That's drinkag1.com slash motherkind to check it out. Is it set up in childhood, this idea of, you know, I have to be perfect to be of value or I have to not be perfect. I have to strive. I have to keep striving. I have to keep trying. I have to do more, be more, achieve more in order to feel loved. Is that where it comes from? It can do. Quite often you can find things like maybe there was a lot of value placed on achievement. And it may not be that your parents have been pushing you and whipping you if you haven't got all straight A's or anything like that. It can be that you've grown up with loving, kind parents, but they showed a little bit of extra love and kindness or, you know, celebrated your successes. And you kind of thought, well, look at all this love I'm getting. If I'm being remarkable, then it might be that only brilliance is seen as good enough and we can't all be remarkable and brilliant in every single thing we do because that goes at the odds with how statistical averages work we need to be below average or average on some things otherwise we can't have a curve where people have below average average and above average but when we kind of see that as seen as unacceptable that means something about me as a person if i don't perform brilliantly at something then it means something about me that i am a failure rather than attributing to bad luck or circumstances, or I'm just not very good at this yet. Perfectionists will attribute it to themselves, that this is a personal shortcoming in me. This is me being a failure. And that can be shaped for loads of things. It can be your upbringing in your family home. It can be the kind of teachers you've had. People have come down hard on mistakes you've made in school, or it can be relationships you've been in say that you were with someone who was maybe harsh about your body or about your behavior or belittled you so there's so many of these shaping situations that kind of chip away at our sense of self-worth and link that self-worth to an achievement it's almost like perfectionism becomes a way to keep safe as long as i'm striving for perfect if i'm striving to be excellent or brilliant at everything i do then I'll be safe because people can't criticize me or they can't judge me or they can't get to me. And ultimately it also comes down to a really deep fear around being left and abandoned. They can't reject me. If I'm doing everything right, they won't have a cause for rejecting me and abandoning me. So there's all walks of life where you'll see perfectionism. It's not just because I think someone who comes from, uh, you know, domestic violence or broken homes or anything like that. It's just all walks of life. I've seen it in all social classes. I've seen it in everywhere from, you know, lorry drivers to people who come here, the children of diplomats. It's everywhere. You know, it's epidemic, isn't it? That idea of I've just got to excel. I've just got to. And the heartbreaking thing for me is when I was living like that, like you said at the top, it really does take the joy out of things. It really does. Like I remember I got quite competitive with horse riding in my late teens And my perfectionism completely sucked the joy out of it because if I didn't win, I saw it as a complete failure. I actually ended up burning out almost on it and quitting because I put myself under so much pressure instead of just now how I would do it is just to enjoy it for what it is. I could not do that. I couldn't do it. What exactly what you said is true. Even when I would win, I couldn't enjoy the win. Because I was so focused on, you know, what did I do? Analyzing it all. And oh my God, exhausting and just not fun. Not fun. 
No, and that's such a shame because we rob ourselves of that. That's obviously what sometimes the saying is perfection is the thief of joy or, you know, the enemy of good and all of these things. And I see people who have so much potential often and they sometimes don't even utilize that potential. And that's why they don't see that they're perfectionists because they kind of think, well, I'm not achieving anything. Like I'm not striving for anything. Yeah. Lots of people say that, don't they? I'm not perfect enough to be a perfectionist. It's like, mm. <laughs> No, exactly. And you look at me like I'm such a failure or like my CV says anything but perfect. And it's not about that because it's not about the destination. It's not about how you ticked off things to be excelling at everything. It's about the mentality you have and how you view yourself and your achievements. You know, the example you give there of like, actually, this could have been lots of fun. You could have, you know, things that I was never a horsey girl because I was too allergic, but I sort of see the friends I had, you know, like had community, you know, they went on all the competitions and they had lots of fun together. They were just chatting in the stables, like constantly living there. And you kind of think the camaraderie and connection you've got robbed of because of perfectionism. It's like a dementor that sort of sucks the joy out of things. And when we think of it that way, we kind of think, well, do I want to consider the benefits and the cost of this? Yes, it might have been something that got me to analyze my mistakes more maybe I'll tweak some things and maybe I'll do that differently in the next time I ride but actually a growth mindset does that too there's nothing wrong with analyzing what you've done what mistakes you've made and how you want to grow with it but we do that with slightly different lens it's like saying to yourself well I'm not very good at that yet what do I need to be able to grow this versus the perfectionist or self-critical fixed mindset would be I'm useless at this I'm no good I might as well quit and when we quit we don't develop it. And you hear so many mothers saying that, don't you? I am not coping. I hear that statement. I'm not coping. I can't cope. And it may well be true. I've definitely had moments where I've thought that, but it comes from that place of I'm broken and I need to fix me. And then what I'm hearing you saying is it's a completely different lens to say to ourselves, I'm not coping. I'm all good. There's nothing broken in me. I wonder if I could learn some new tools and strategies that could help me right now. There's a completely different energy behind ultimately probably the same actions that you might take, but the way that we do it is completely different, isn't it? Well, I think of it sort of almost like having two different theories in your head. And, you know, in any given point, when you look at theories as a scientist, you can look for evidence to support or, or falsify them. So the first theory that we often see when people come to me is I'm a terrible mother. I'm a failure as a person or I'm, I'm no good or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to swear and I'm a shit at what I do. I'm a shit person. And that's the sort of the ultimate all or nothing thinking there. I'm just no good. So, okay, so that's one theory that we have. Another theory could be that you are someone who prides herself in being a good mother. You are someone who really values good connection with your children. You are someone who prioritizes and really want to have a life where you have a good family and you are loving and kind towards each other but you also put a lot of pressure on yourself to work hard so you are depleted so one hand is I'm a shit mother or I'm a depleted mother who cares a lot about being a good mother and at any given point you have a choice it's almost like the first one is a path through the jungle that you've trodden on a lot so it's well familiar and this is what happens in your brain actually on a kind of neural pathway level as well you've taken that path so many times i'm shit i'm a failure i'm no good everyone else is better so that doesn't take much effort it's like clicking you there whereas the new alternative route rather than saying oh i'm now going to kind of override the other one and you can't really it doesn't really work that way in your brain but you can do things to cultivate this new theory like oh 
potentially, maybe there's a chance that I am actually worthwhile. Maybe there's a chance that I am a good mother who is just really worried about being a bad one. And the more times you do things like invite a friend in, even though you haven't done dishes, or you apologize to your child after you've shouted at them saying, mommy lost her temper. So actually owning those mistakes, owning these flaws with compassion, the more times you do these things, you kind of like, mm, maybe there is some chance I can walk on that new path. And what actually happens in your brain is called competition of retrieval. It's like you send in competition to your brain, which path I'm going to retrieve the information from. The old one, which is so familiar that I'm going to fall into that anyway, quite often I can fall into that even though I've done all this work on myself. This is what I mean about it's not possible to get to a point where you never walk the old path again, but you learn to recognize it. Like, oh, here you are again, old friend. I know you. This is the story of failure. This is my failure story that shows up rather than my new story, which is much more recent. So it's harder to find evidence for it. So I hope that that makes sense for people. It's kind of giving themselves the permission to take time with this, to change things in a neural pathway in your brain it takes months, if not years to do, to the rewiring of your brain. So we want to kind of allow ourselves the permission to still meet those old thoughts with compassion when they come up. And is that where you would suggest someone would start with this, is noticing those thoughts and then starting to gently reframe them? What are some of the other sort of practical strategies, tools, things that you've really seen help your clients transform this, all oh, this horrible perfectionism? One thing that you mentioned that is the thoughts is the kind of act of noticing your thoughts, watching them from afar almost. Like I'm noticing that I'm having thoughts that I'm a failure. You know, I can notice a thought at the moment that I'm not going to be doing a good enough job on your podcast or I'm noticing thoughts that maybe I've missed something, right? That can happen there, you know, concurrently. So that's one technique to use. It's almost like getting perspective, noticing your thoughts. You don't have to do anything to change them. You don't have to find evidence for and again. You don't have to go, oh, look, you said so many smart things earlier. All you have to do is notice because that means almost like you get perspective, you get a space between you and the thoughts so that you can look at it and like, ah, oh, that's a thought that I get quite a lot. The thought tends to come up when I'm under pressure or the thought tends to come up when I'm worried that I'm being judged by other mothers. How interesting. That is a common thought for me through no fault of my own. Again, you're linking it back to any past history you have. Well, it's understandable that I get failure story thoughts when I feel like I'm doing something new and challenging, etc. So you kind of think about behaviors, unpicking some of those things that I mentioned earlier, trying to reduce the time you spend checking things, trying to trust more into your intuition rather than asking for reassurance. These are things we do as behavioral experiments. You just play around with. Try to invite a friend over without hoovering. Try to tell someone about how you're actually feeling instead of just saying, oh, I'm fine, thanks, how are you? actually showing some vulnerability. So these are things that are much easier to do when you're guided by someone else. It can come up with sort of a list or a hierarchy of things you can try so you don't go straight into the deep end and be like, right, that's it. I'm now working on being more imperfect. So I'm going to go on a really big podcast and tell the story of my personal burnout. Hmm. I mean, I didn't do that first, right? I've been working up to that story for a long time. So we then think about how we also sit with the emotions. So there are things we can do to sort of work on a softening shame. We do visualizations, kind of things you do with eyes closed, imagining things on the inside, conjuring up a more compassionate version of you and conjuring up a almost like an inner guardian, like a, a guide that you can have with you when you're doing this hard work. 
And with practice over time, that compassionate voice will then also soothe the inner critical voice. So a lot of these things you can do through meditations and visualizations guided by a psychologist or a therapist. And then over time, that leads them to taking more compassionate action in real life as well, because we can't always sit with eyes closed in a meditation, right? That's unrealistic. So that might be that in the moment, you do something that's kind for you. Like instead of answering one more email, you go to the toilet to have a toilet break. Or before you put out lunch on the table, you have a quick glass of water for yourself. So like bringing yourself into the mix as a mother and those little actions are more important than any sort of big thing thinking, oh, I'm going to go away for a long spa weekend. Actually, learning to take one glass of water every morning has more bearing on you chipping away on this idea that you're not worthwhile or that you need to be perfect to have value because actually I matter too. I'm bringing myself into the mix. So we would look at thoughts, feelings, emotions, and also physiological responses, trying to soothe the overwhelm in your body because a lot of the women I work with have almost like a constant nervous system frazzledness you know that's the kind of thing that makes us go no more noise i cannot tolerate one more screaming child because you just go and that's because your nervous system is too frazzled so we need to work on sort of the slowing down the calming down and the healing of that as well how does someone know their nervous system is frazzled so you mentioned their like sensitivity to noise like what would be some of the other signs Good question. I think that's very different from person to person. So knowing yourself is really important. What's your normal baseline? One thing we can see is, for instance, muscle tension. You know, so if you go to the dentist and they go, well, your jaws are kind of tight. Or if you were, you know, lucky enough to go for a massage and they might say, oh, you've got some knots in your shoulders. Just ask your partner or kid or whatever, give you a little rub if you're very tense. So muscle tension means that we're kind of holding a lot of pressure. It might be that you're speaking very fast. You're constantly rushing. It might be that you're struggling to fall asleep, even though you're knackered. So that's kind of like a wired, but tired, but wired. And that can be really important to tune into. And it's almost like frazzledness that you can't concentrate. You can't focus on anything. Your memory is quite poor. And yet you sort of feel like I've got a lot of things I'm juggling, but I can't get any of them done. Procrastination we mentioned as well. So it's almost like a, a lack of focus overall. And your body just doesn't feel quite right it's sluggish or depleted but it can equally also be like i'm so tense i'm wired like hard like a spring in any moment i'm going to explode and that can lead into irritability you know losing your temper shouting at the kids shouting at your partner feeling like you cannot deal with any single more demands if there's one more request you're going to lose it that's a really common one as well which again, a lot of these things can be just normal parenthood, normal motherhood as well. We don't want to kind of go, oh, you lost your shit with your kids once and now you must be in burnout. I want to just acknowledge that some of these things can also be caused by other things like depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, any physical health conditions as well, like chronic pain. There's lots of these things that can give similar symptoms. So it's important to not self-diagnose as being burnt out. But for sure, If you have a history of having put pressure on yourself, haven't enjoyed the wins you've made, and you constantly strive to get to the next point without taking any any satisfaction, then odds are probably that you're quite perfectionistic in how you go through life. I think this nervous system thing is so important for mums because there's like an explosion in parenting content. You know, a mother kind in a way is is part of that, although we focus far more on the mother than the parenting. But what I've really seen in myself is that I cannot deliver any of those amazing parenting strategies that I know when I'm dysregulated. 
What can someone do if they're really identifying with that list of when they feel dysregulated? And as you say, it doesn't mean you have to diagnose yourself with anything. It may be that your nervous system in that moment is dysregulated. It can be a moment, can't it? What could someone do to bring themselves back to that state where they're able to feel calm enough to calm down, to regulate themselves and then do whatever they need to around them? I mean, one word, breathe. It's the breath, it's everything. I do want to caveat this kind of nervous system regulation talk with saying, it cannot be another thing on your like 2023 20, to-do list. And so now, oh, I now need to also like regulate my nervous system because I'm aware how that can sound when, you know, it sounds like it's full of privilege, right? So I want to make sure that this cannot be something that you're also failing at. If you feel like you are dysregulated in your nerve system, no wonder we're all under pressure at the moment. So then meeting yourself with kindness and say, well, it's no wonder, you know, for me, I've got a one-year-old who doesn't sleep very well. And I've got a six-year-old who has high, you know, sensitivity. So no wonder that at times I'm dysregulated. And through no fault of my own, it happens, you know, it happens, we do it. I'm not naturally super mega calm person. So I've had to work really hard at bringing that calm in and it doesn't always work. So the breath is something you can do to try to get a little bit more access to the parts of your brain that are more about logic and understanding and rationality. Because when you're emotional, it's almost like you get hijacked by your amygdala, the emotion centers in your brain, and you just can't. Much like you see a kid who has a meltdown, you can't logically reason with them anymore that you can logically reason with yourself when you're having a meltdown. So giving yourself the grace and the space to try to calm down. Sometimes that can be about walking away from a situation where I feel overwhelmed. So I just need space now. I need to go and breathe. So for me, when I've had my hardest part in mothering, my hardest parts of sort of motherhood being the first year of my first child's life when I was so sleep deprived and had loads of challenges with allergies and reflux and whatnot and trauma, it was just to breathe. I couldn't access any of the other compassion things I normally did. You know, I had sort of a feeling that my compassionate other, my guide was with me but I couldn't really access any of the self-talk. I was literally just, I can do the breath. So whatever I do, I can do the breath. So that might be like pacing around the cot with the baby in my arms and just breathing or humming or singing or whatever you want to do. And that is one way to try to regulate your nervous system in that moment. If it doesn't work, don't beat yourself up for it because that's not going to regulate you anymore. <laughs> beautiful you deliver so much compassion with all these tools because you're absolutely right you know and I'm so conscious of that you know sharing these ideas and these tools that they do not become another thing it's meant to be helpful right and the moment it becomes something we beat ourselves up with it's not helpful anymore so I love that you just underscored that like we all are dysregulated of course but it's how do we then add the and to that you know and here's a simple breath that you can do that if you remember to do it one in 10 times, it's going to make 10% easier. Yeah. It's so important to remember that. Absolutely. And I think that's probably a really good place to ask you the final question, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? It would be the gift to give yourself grace for whatever you're going through. It might be that it's hard to be compassionate to yourself. And then it's about being kind to yourself about how hard it is to be kind to yourself. The permission to allow this to be an ongoing journey rather than a destination. Mm, that's beautiful. And where can people learn more about you and your work? Tell us about what you've got on offer at the moment. 
So you can go to thethomasconnection.co.uk, which is my website, or you can find me on LinkedIn under Michaela Thomas or Instagram, which is where I mainly hang out, the Thomas underscore connection. And I have a group coaching program that is called Burn Bright, where I work with perfectionistic working mothers who put pressure on themselves to meet all these ambitious goals, but then actually stretch themselves too thin in the process. I have both one-to-one and group coaching and therapy available. So I would love to help anyone who needs to address these perfectionistic patterns that's stopping them from finding pause, purpose, and play, which is my signature system that is also the name of my podcast, where hint, hint, you can listen to a fantastic episode with Zoe about breaking generational trauma. You can. I will link that episode because I loved it and I loved coming on with you. And I, I've had the privilege of working with you as well because you came into one of my coaching containers. So it's just been really nice, that symbiotic relationship that we've had. And yeah, just thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and just your compassion. Michaela, you're so gentle and so compassionate. You know, this is what mothers need to hear. So thank you. Thank you for having me on. And just, you know, this version of me sitting here is gentle and compassionate. It's not always her that gets to be riding the bus. But so it's really important to know there's so many different parts of us and we have space for all of them. So thank you so much for having me on as a guest. That was the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. Please do consider sharing it. That is how the Motherkind podcast has grown. You, my lovely listeners, sharing the episodes that you love. So please do share it. And if you have time, please do consider leaving us a review wherever you are listening to this podcast. It makes such a big difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this incredible content. So through August, we re-release our most popular episodes for the first six months of the year. So look out for those in your feed. Also, if you're listening to this on Apple, which over 70% of you do, then you can now subscribe to the podcast for just $3.99 a month. And you can support me and my very, very, very small team to keep putting out incredible content. So thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your support. And I will see you next time. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Nicole. And if you enjoy this show, you will love our podcast, Self Care Club. Every week, we trial a different form of self-care and report back on the results. We've tried everything from cuddle therapy, setting boundaries, laughter yoga, and many more. Two friends who rarely agree on anything, testing out the world of self-care so you don't have to. We've even written a book dedicated to self-care practices that cost you nothing. You can listen to Self Care Club wherever you get your podcasts. Or to purchase our book, search Have You Tried This on Amazon.